another pot of coffee is brewing and I am actually about to take a sip from my third cup of the morning. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. I'm just going to insert an apology here. I seem to have picked up something of a late summer cold. So if you hear any clicks or sniffles that I can't edit out, that's actually me, I'm afraid. I am going to try and be as gross-free as is possible. As I mentioned at the end of last week's episode about Lucifer, I'm going to be changing things up this season because I feel like a little bit of balance is in order, especially as I am in the process of changing jobs, which, as anyone who's done it will know, is a busy time. All that means is season three is going to be a healthy mix of books, film and TV. Once a month, I'm going to be picking a TV show, and with the extra hours that a month is going to give me, we'll be able to spend a lot more time on writing an episode about the show. It could be a season, perhaps even two, but I really want to create something that has a little more depth and more insight into the programme. Anyway, this week, as promised, is all about a Disney movie that, it could be said, found inspiration in the Indiana Jones trilogy. Let's not even touch the crystal skull with a 10-foot barge pole. Yes, I am transporting us all back to 2004, in the years before Nicolas Cage started to play older angry men in unusual films. I'm not looking at anything in particular jiu-jitsu. I am going to be talking about National Treasure, a film I will occasionally, admittedly, put on when the urge takes me, because it's a fun ride that has some exciting moments, and... Being completely honest and transparent here, who doesn't like a little conspiracy theory here and there? If you haven't seen National Treasure yet, then you really are missing out on a light-hearted adventure that sometimes, briefly, feels a little bit like a history lesson, but without the diagrams and date charts that you always have to study and memorise in the classroom, or at least you did when I was studying history 10,000 years ago. I guess I should start with the story, just so anyone who hasn't seen it has at least some idea of what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it in a while, you're going to be getting a bit of a refresh. Benjamin Franklin Gates is part of a family that has long been the laughing stock of the history community. There is a family story told for many generations of a lost treasure, and they have the start of the key. All the way back in 1832, which to me sounds rather recent when I consider that the church I was christened in was built in 1108, but for the US is still very close to the founding of the nation, Ben's great-great-great-something grandfather Thomas Gates was given a message for President Andrew Jackson by Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the last surviving founding father. The secret lies with Charlotte. For over a century, no one had 
any idea what this meant. Scholars laughed at the Gates family, who continued to search for the answers and the treasure they believed to be at the end of the journey, but to no avail. All they were left with was a joke of a name and a distinct lack of respect from their history peers. So, what changed? Somehow, Ben manages to get an equally enthusiastic benefactor, Ian Howe, who is played by Sean Bean, who is probably more famous for playing characters that constantly get killed off. Anyway, it's never really explained in detail how Ian gets his money, but he is proving to be a very generous benefactor for Ben. They both have the same goal, though no doubt for two very different reasons. Ben... Ian and Ian's men are accompanied on their trip to the icy coast of Newfoundland by Riley Poole, a computer hacker who is probably just as much of a nerd as Ben, but not able to hide it quite as well. Riley spends most of his time looking at a computer screen. Not that there is anything wrong with that at all, say I as I'm sitting staring at a computer screen. When they finally find the Charlotte, she's an old English ship that is full of skeletons and barrels of gunpowder. However, there is one barrel that does yield a treasure, an old pipe, beautifully carved out of ivory in the shape of a ship. It turns out that this pipe is also a clue. Well, when Ben cuts his finger, rubs his blood all over the stem and then rolls it out on a piece of paper, it is. After a bit of convoluted history digging, which for a Brit who never studied American history actually proves to be quite helpful, Ian announces that they will have to go for the next clue, which happens to be on the most valuable document in US history, the Declaration of Independence. Of course, Ben and Riley can't have that, a Brit stealing the Declaration and probably destroying it. But before they can do much more than protest, Ian sets things in motion that cause the ship to catch fire. It's only thanks to Ben's historical knowledge of, it appears, pretty much everything that enables Riley and Ben to escape unscathed. A little while later, we see Ben and Riley doing their best to convince anyone that could do anything, FBI, Homeland Security, that someone is planning on stealing the Declaration of Independence. This takes them to the National Archives, where they meet Abigail Chase, played by Diane Kruger, in her fourth role, no less, of 2004. She's an archivist and has a passion for American history. She also possesses a collection of vintage campaign buttons, specifically from George Washington's campaign trail, but it's not complete. When they are again rebuffed, as no one can steal the Declaration of Independence because it's so securely kept, Ben states that they are going to steal it to prevent it from being stolen by Ian. Questionable logic there. Thus begins what is actually a relatively simple plan to steal the Declaration from the archives. Riley's knowledge of computer systems comes in incredibly handy, as does Ben's acquisition of the campaign pin missing from Abigail's collection. Though, if I'm being honest, if they're that valuable, no collector worth their salt would actually touch them if they weren't wearing gloves. Anyway, initially things go off without a hitch. Ben enters the fundraiser wearing a workman's uniform and then subtly changes into a tux in the toilets. 
He blends in without issue, and his previous introduction to Abigail, with the fake name Paul Brown, enables him to easily look as though he belongs. He gains access to the vault and the declaration, and while he has been doing all of this, we're given glimpses of Ian and his men, who appear to be preparing for a siege. Guns, black bulletproof clothing, and a camouflaged van. Ben is about to leave the building with the declaration when Ian spots him and shots are fired. Great. So they're shooting at the one thing <laughs> that they're trying to steal. That's fantastic. He uses the case with the declaration in as a shield. So it's a pretty good job it's in bulletproof casing or the whole thing would have been for nothing. By this point, Abigail has sensed that something is up and she starts to look for Paul Brown. After discovering that no such man is on the guest list, she becomes even more suspicious, as you kind of would, really. Ben is now in the gift shop, however. He has the declaration in hand, but the woman at the counter stops him and requests that he pay for it, a grand sum of $35 for the most expensive and treasured piece of American history that is in their possession. No one on a heist tends to carry money, however, and Ben is no different. There you go. There's a there's a good tip for you. If you're going on a heist, make sure you've got some cash on you. Hello, Visa. And hello, Paper Trail. Complicating things doesn't stop there, though. Abigail confronts Ben outside the archives, yelling and shouting, getting the attention of Ian and his men, who were frustrated and annoyed that their mission was a bust, courtesy of Ben, though they managed to escape even after the alarm was raised. Abigail is then taken hostage by Ian and thus starts a van chase in a GMC Vandura and a massively bulky Grumman Olsen Curbmaster. Seriously, these two vehicles are not made for a chase. Eventually, Ben manages to help Abigail move from Ian's truck to his own, but Ian feels victorious as it appears he has possession of the declaration. Or does he? Remember the shop. Realising that they can't go back to Ben's house because he at least knows he has left a very accurate paper trail, they head to Ben's father's. Ben knows that they will need the silence do-good letters to decipher whatever is found on the map they are going to find on the back of the declaration and his copies are now inaccessible. But his dad has the originals. Abigail is absolutely refusing to leave them with the document she is determined to protect at any cost. Horrified that she is stuck with these people and her annoyance is incredibly clear in every single word she says and every expression she gives them. She is definitely not amused. While Ben is telling everyone about the silence do-good letters, Peter Sadusky played by Harvey Keitel, is storming Ben's house where they find a clean room and his copies of the silence do good letters. At the same time, Ian is looking at the original clue they got from the Charlotte and realises that silence is a name. So all three parties are now on pretty much the same page, though only one person has possession of the map. Patrick Gates, who is played by John Voigt, is not happy to see his son. He is especially unhappy when he discovers that Ben is still on the trail that destroyed the reputation of so many Gates men, including himself. 
But Ben will not be deterred. He found the Charlotte, found the original clue, and now has the map that will lead to the final answer, or so he believes. Scientifically speaking, the next scene is so inaccurate, it would probably make many kids who played with invisible ink and letters cry. Heat. Heat is what would make invisible ink appear. Not lemon juice and a bit of breathing or a hairdryer. Patrick Gates, when he suggests putting the map in the oven to uncover any hidden messages, wasn't far wrong. The lemon juice has no place here. Anyway, the message is uncovered and it's an Ottendorf cipher, something incredibly popular and even used in Castle Season 2 episode Tick, Tick, Tick. I will probably go to Castle at some point because it is a show that I really liked. Without the key in the form of the letters, it's not much good. And Patrick has, it appears, donated the letters to the Benjamin Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, which is, to be honest, where things of that sort of historic value really should belong. The next thing we know, the FBI with Sadusky have tracked Ben to his father's, but he's already off to Philadelphia and the Silence Do Good letters. Tell me something here. Am I the only person who watched the scenes with Riley paying a young child to do something for him and think this is a little bit questionable? Anyway, the cipher is solved and it leads our heroic trio to the Pennsylvania State House, the former home of the Liberty Bell and the location that the Silence Do Good clue leads to. The vision to see the treasured past comes as the timely shadow crosses in front of the house of Pass and Stowe. Of course, interesting history fact here for anyone who, like me, isn't well versed in US history. The Liberty Bell was cast in 1752, while the Silence Do Good letters were written 30 years previously by a 15-year-old Benjamin Franklin in 1722. Being the big brains that they are, Using the back of a $100 bill, they resolve that the shadow will pass over that location at 2.22. Well, actually 3.22, courtesy of daylight savings time. Though, in reality, the time on the tower in 2004, on the $100 bill, would have been 4.10. Though, in 2013, the $100 bill was upgraded, and it now reads 10.30 though no reason for that has been made clear. Anyway, less of the history lesson. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't come here for that. And more of the chase that ensues after our heroes discover a pair of glasses or an ocular device, as Ben refers to them, in a compartment in the wall near to the original site of the Liberty Bell. And Ian decides that things aren't over and he still wants the map and whatever else Ben has discovered. During the chase, there was a moment when I looked at the action on screen as Ian stood in the middle of a pretty busy street and nothing hit him. And I was just waiting for him to get struck by a massive truck. For some reason, for just a moment there, I forgot that this is a film during which Sean Bean does not die. Hold the front page. He's making a break with tradition. Of course, he is a Brit and he is the evil coloniser in the film, but he doesn't die. 
Anyway, less of my annoyance with the fact that it seems that almost every bad guy in films turns out to be British. And let's get back to the film. Okay, so where was I? Oh yes, Ian has the map. Ben has been arrested by the FBI and is being questioned by Peter Sadusky. Remember, the guy who appeared at the beginning of the film and is being played by Harvey Keitel. Abigail and Riley realise that they have no other choice. They are going to have to negotiate with Ian in order to get Ben back from the FBI and they can't continue their mission without him. Ben is handcuffed to a desk in the FBI Philadelphia offices when Ian calls. He tells the FBI that he will return the Declaration of Independence unharmed if they release Ben. They arrange the meeting place on the deck of the USS Intrepid. And nothing is without a price. But the FBI is so sure that they will be able to outsmart Ian with his seemingly unlimited funds and a group of mercenaries who will do anything he asks, mostly because they're getting paid, that they agree to Ian's terms. Nothing ever works out the way you want it to. Ian has actually beaten them at their own game. Ben jumps into the harbour even as a ton of poorly disguised FBI guys are watching him and he is lost. Well, to them anyway. The next clue that Ben reads on the map using Franklin's glasses is here at the wall with two E's before the R. A clue that leads Ben, Ian and everyone else to Trinity Church, a building that stands at the junction of Wall Street and Broadway, which was originally called De Hare Street with the clue after making very little sense as it is beneath Parkington Lane and Parkington Lane doesn't exist. When they arrive there, Ian has one of his hired helpers knock a door through a grave marker for someone who was actually called Parkington Lane. Unfortunate name. This leads everyone to a very rickety staircase plus a rather unstable looking lift and pulley thing. And I'm saying thing because I'm thinking can I actually call it a lift or an elevator I wouldn't I wouldn't get on it at this point someone asks how the Freemasons went about building this incredible structure and Ben responds that it was built the same way as the pyramids and other buildings though none are mentioned I could put together a list and the subject is dropped when they get to the bottom nothing is there it looks as though everything was cleared out understandably Ian is mad Look at all the laws he's had to break in order to get to a treasure he fully intended to steal. And it's not there. Oh, I should probably mention here that Ben was reluctant to work with Ian, but when it's revealed that Patrick is now an unwilling participant in the mission, he had no choice but to cooperate. Bargaining chips. They're everywhere. Anyway, Gates Senior tells Ian that the whole thing has always been a series of clues, one leading to the next, and this one was no different. But he is sure that all of this is actually leading to Old North Church in Boston. Feeling smug, Ian tells Ben, Abigail and Riley that he is going to leave them in this crypt, and if he needs them, then he knows exactly where they are. Once Ian has gone, taking their only means of escape with them, and by this I mean the rickety old lift contraption, both Patrick and Ben reveal that they still need to look for the treasure vault because this isn't it and neither is the old North Church. They all work together and find a door, but when they go through it, it's another empty chamber. 
It should have led to their path out of the crypt, but it just leads to a dead end. And then Ben notices a slot that will fit the pipe that is shaped like a ship. You know, the one that Ben discovered at the very beginning of the film. Luckily for all concerned, once Ian was given the location of the treasure, or so he believed, he left Ben with the pipe and the Declaration of Independence, as he no longer had use for either of them. Poor deluded man. The group is lucky. With a hiss and a heavy slide, another doorway opens and the real treasure is revealed. Abigail is in heaven, scrolls from the library at Alexandria, so many stunning pieces of history that have been hidden away for centuries. Poor Riley, though. He looks at a statue that clearly came from an Egyptian tomb and doesn't realise what it is. So much for knowing history. He says it's a weird thing with a beard on it. With the flick of a wrist and a flame in a trough of oil, the sheer size of this treasure is revealed. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of years of treasures stolen from civilizations over the years and then hidden away to prevent them from being taken by the British, instead just moving it from place to place and never seeing the light of day. I'm getting to the end now. The treasure has been found, the good guys found it, but what's going to happen next? How are they going to get away with it after all the laws they've broken along the way? With the biggest one obviously being stealing the most precious piece of paper possessed by any museum in the US. It's not even paper, it's animal skin. But it is still classed as paper because it's written on. It's going to be quite easy really. As Peter Sadowski is only too quick to tell Ben when he hands the Declaration of Independence over, someone needs to pay the price and go to prison for this crime. There's always a way, though, especially in a Disney movie. And lucky for everyone involved, there is someone who can take the blame for everything. Especially given the fact that Ben would never have started down the theft and destruction of property path without him. Ian is arrested just as he is about to break into the Old North Church in Boston, and instead of being arrested and charged with anything, Riley, Abigail and Ben are given 1% of the value of the treasure that they discovered. They were offered 10 and they turned it down. Riley is not amused. And there you have it. A nice, neat, tidy Disney ending tied up with a pretty bow that leads you neatly into the potential for a sequel. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers in the last week, a brand new episode of The Bookshop, all about Matthew Quick's debut novel, The Silver Linings Playbook, is available for download now. At its heart, National Treasure is a strange combination of Indiana Jones and The Da Vinci Code. It's part treasure hunt and part conspiracy theory. They head more into the conspiracy theory territory in the sequel, Book of Secrets, but we're not talking about that one now. The film was apparently written with the intention of drawing on events that truly happened in US history and then building on elements and veering away from the truth to make for an action-packed story. For all anyone knows, because no one who does know is telling, there really could be a Templar treasure hidden somewhere waiting to be found. 18 ships actually sailed to the New World from Europe full of something and they went missing. So this will always remain a mystery. But then that's why it's a mystery. 
As I mentioned a little earlier, the Charlotte was actually a real ship that went missing off the coast of Newfoundland in 1818. It has never been found. So it's possible it could be discovered somewhere near to where Ian and Ben found the ship in the film. We're probably never going to know. One thing that was twisted from truth incredibly early in the film is the story that starts the entire Gates family history quest. Charles Carroll of Carrollton was still alive in 1832, though he did die that year at age 95. And this was the time that Andrew Jackson was president. Andrew Jackson actually was a Freemason. However, Charles Carroll was a devout Catholic, and this means that he would never have become a Freemason, as it was against the tenets of his religious practice. National Treasure is a fun ride. Nicolas Cage is his usual enthusiastic and over-the-top self, and for me, that immediately gives an indication of what to expect. An enjoyable, exciting film. We've come to the question and answer section of the episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would really like to hear me answer about the films and shows I watch, or if there's something you'd love to hear me cover. So, here goes. Did I enjoy it? This is one of those films that fits so many moments. Sometimes it's the film on in the background as I do something else. And sometimes, like last week, it's the film that I watch because I just want to switch my brain off and be entertained. I am a fan of much of Nicolas Cage's stuff, starting with Raising Arizona. I love him in Gone in 60 Seconds, though that probably is something more to do with the cars. I think that The Rock is a fun film with an action payoff, and Con Air is one of those films that I have watched so many times, thank you Disney+, Plus. but mostly because I think that Steve Buscemi is great in it. There's just something about his character, even though he is creepy as anything. For me, National Treasure is a film that I like to watch. It's a film that I used to watch whenever it was on TV, whether it was a bank holiday, Christmas or a normal weekend. It's the sort of story that has a bit of everything. Romance, action, adventure and history. All the things that make for exciting reads and watches, at least from my perspective. Would I watch more? I still have to rewatch the sequel as it has been quite a while and it's definitely on my watch list. But I know that when I do turn it on, my notepad will have to come out and I will start writing another script for another episode. I can't talk about the first film without planning on talking about the second at some point. However, as I am currently talking about the original film, I am going to answer with the truth. Yes, I am probably going to watch it again. It's a great film for passing the time when I'm tired or drained or just want to watch something that makes me smile. I like the conspiracy theory aspect and I love the action side. There is something about the story that is fun and entertaining and sometimes that is exactly what I need from a film. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? Tomorrow, as this episode is being released on Thursday, I'm going to be leaving a job where I have been working for the last three years. In fact, I am leaving on what is my third year anniversary. 
It takes a lot of courage to make any change in your life, whether you suffer from anxiety or cope with everything as it comes. The saying is, a change is as good as a rest. And while that is true, it's also true that it takes a lot of guts to make that change, to take that single step towards something new and away from the familiar. While I'm really happy that I'm moving towards something fresh and new, experiences I have never had, though to be fair every workplace has similar aspects, I'm also currently experiencing the predictable imposter syndrome. The dread that goes with the concern I won't be able to do the job I've been hired for. Deep down I know that I am perfectly capable of doing the work. But I am terrified that I am going to show up on day one and every single sensible thought that I have will have completely left my brain and I will be left a shell of the person I am. The fear is something that comes back pretty much every single night. I wake up in a sweat, feeling sick and having had the most vivid weird dreams that, according to the wonder that is Google, are apparently about fear of failure. They're about torture, just for the record. Not that understanding what they're about actually makes them go away. I am sure that when I start my new job in two weeks, things will ease as I slowly get used to the new environment, the new working habits, even the new hours. But as I adjust to the knowledge that my life is about to change, for the better I am sure, I will just have to put up with the weird dreams, the fear that I am somehow going to screw up, and the dread that I have made a mistake in leaving a job where I have been somewhat secure for several years. Because, after all, what's secure in the age of Covid, Brexit, gas shortages and the threat of recession? So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I'll be back next week for more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new episode and I hope that you'll like what I have to say about my next book. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family, and please post a review or a star rating over on Podchaser. I love reading what you have to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs, or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Well, I've just finished my third cup, so I definitely have to go and get another one, so I'm going to put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.